I really struggled as I began writing the message for this week. Sometimes the struggle comes because you don't really know, oh, what's God wanting to say in this? But other times the struggle comes because everywhere you look, there's just stuff after stuff after stuff, like things that God's wanting to say. And, and that was the case with this one. The first half of the reading, it tells us a lot about Jesus and, and about the nature of what it really means for Jesus to be the Christ and it's a lot of really important stuff there. And the second half of the reading, well, it tells us a lot about the disciples of Jesus and the nature of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. And it's really important too. And so there's a lot of really important stuff here. And if we were going to get our teeth into it properly, there's plenty there for three or four or five weeks of messages. And it would be wrong for us to, but it would be wrong for us to divide it up. It's, it's really important that we hold it together because the nature of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ is so intertwined and connected to the call of discipleship. Uh, it would be wrong. It would be vandalism to disconnect it. But too often, the suffering, dying Jesus is seen as the one who disconnects his followers from suffering and dying. Uh, for too long, Jesus has been getting presented as the one who is cursed so that his followers would be blessed. So Jesus was poor so we can be rich. He was physically tortured and physically abused so we can be physically safe. He was put to death so that we can physically live. And so for too long, the suffering, dying Jesus has been getting presented by preachers as the one who disconnects his followers from what is really the very cost of being a disciple. Now, some who hear this message today are going to love it, and some are going to be repulsed by it. Some of you will be greatly encouraged as we read these words of Jesus, um, and as you hear the message, you'll find these to be some of the most wonderful, inspiring and, and encouraging words. Words that will increase your faith, uh, words that will gladden your heart and words that will confirm your purpose and your calling as a disciple of Jesus. But many others who hear these words of Jesus and who listen to this message today may be shaken to the core. Uh, for some, these will be very hard words indeed, words that some will reject and some will find utterly repulsive because they cannot believe that a loving Heavenly Father could ever let his children suffer in any way. Right? So in the full knowledge uh, that some people will be gladdened and some are going to be repulsed, uh, let's begin. Mark chapter 8 verse 27 through to chapter 9 verse 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Those are some tough words, hey? Let's pray. Precious, loving, heavenly Father, today as we study your word, we come in the full knowledge that in many ways we tend to set our minds on the things of man. But Lord, we ask now that that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to set our minds on the things of God that we would not be ashamed of you, that we would not be ashamed of your words, even though they be repulsive to the world. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, and give us understanding. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Righto. Well, today's Bible reading is the turning point in the Gospel of Mark. First of all, it's a turning point geographically. Uh, Apart from Jesus' baptism, up until now, Jesus has been mainly flitting from spot to spot, mainly in the rural areas of Galilee and and into northern Israel. And his starting point today is in the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Geographically, this is about the furthest that you can get away from Jerusalem and still be in Israel. Right, so if we think in Australian terms, Canberra is our capital, it would be like starting off in Kununurra or Broome or somewhere up and over there. And from this point, Jesus now sets his face towards Jerusalem. And from now until the end of the gospel, he's journeying towards Jerusalem. And he's going there with a purpose. He has an appointment with the cross. Secondly, It's a turning point in establishing the identity of Jesus. It's been revealed to us readers as we began reading the Gospel of Mark. um, We were told this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But up until now, it's been telling the story about how people didn't realise this about Jesus. Jesus has been doing all of these Christ-like things, but the disciples, they still weren't able to figure out who this Jesus bloke was. But today... The realisation finally dawns on them and Peter says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah. And thirdly, it's a turning point in teaching. Up until now, we've been hearing a fair bit about the kingdom of God, but we haven't heard much about the Son of Man. In the first seven and a half chapters 
Only twice, right back in chapter 2, Jesus described himself as the Son of Man. But in the remaining eight and a half chapters, we're going to hear this 11 times. The Son of Man. What is this Son of Man? What's the significance of this? In the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is pictured as the eternal king of an eternal kingdom. Right? So in Daniel chapter 7, he's predicting the judgment of God followed by the establishment of an eternal kingdom. And it is the Son of Man who is going to be this eternal king in this kingdom. And Jesus is now begins teaching them that, that, yeah, I'm the Son of Man. But he starts teaching them something very unexpected about the Son of Man. He's teaching them that before the glorious new kingdom comes of this Son of Man, first of all, the Son of Man has to suffer and die. And today's reading sets the tone for this. Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? Now, obviously, it's been a topic of conversation. Why wouldn't it be? I mean, Jesus has been doing all of these amazing miracles all over the place. And we've been catching so far little glimpses of comments. Who is this? Who can do this sort of stuff? I mean, here he is. Jesus has been healing the sick. He's been driving out demons. He's, he's calmed the rage he sees and he's stopped the wind in its tracks. He's walked on the water. He's made the blind to see. He's made the deaf to hear. He fed the 5,000. He fed the 4,000. And, and the way that Jesus taught had such insight and such authority to it. His spiritual abilities and the amazing insight and the authority that Jesus had with his teaching far outweighed the abilities of any man of Jesus' age and, and certainly of a man with no education. And so they thought, well, maybe he's got to be one of the great prophets come back to life again. Maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's Elijah. Um, maybe he's one of the other prophets. Now, if we were to consider that same question today, who do the people say that Jesus is? We'd get all sorts of answers, wouldn't we? Some people would say he's a good teacher. Some people would say he's a wise sage. Some people would say he's a mystic or some kind of spiritual guru. Some people would say he was a kind man. Some would say he was a con man who tricked people into following him. Some people would say he's a political activist on a quest for social change. Today we'd get all sorts of answers. But Jesus followed that question up with a much more intensely personal question. And it's a question that each of us has to grapple with today as one that we can't remain unanswered. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus was forcing his disciples to make a decision. Not just, what's the prevailing opinion of your community? He wasn't asking them, what do the preachers and the theologians say about me? He's not asking you this either. What does your preacher say about me? He's not asking you, what do your parents 
say about me? What do your best friends say about me? He's asking you, who do you say that I am? He forces us to put our cards on the table. It's not even about who do you think I am? It's who do you say I am? Would you even say it if you were asked that question anywhere other than in church? And Peter? Well, let's face it, I've come to the conclusion that Peter must have been very flexible. He must have been a gymnast. He seemed to have the ability that whenever he opened his mouth, he could put his foot in it, right? But this is one of the rare occasions where Peter didn't. It's not just yet, he does later on. Peter comes straight out with it. He says, you're the Christ. Now, what did Peter mean by that? He's saying, you are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the one that we've been waiting for all of these years. Finally, they've got it. Top marks, Peter. You've got it, Peter. But surprisingly, Jesus' response to this is, right, now that you know this, don't tell anybody. Right? Just don't tell anybody just yet. Now, I suspect the reason for this might have been if everybody knew that Jesus was the Messiah, they'd want to start doing things man's way instead of doing it God's way. Uh, In John chapter 6, we've got a similar thing happening here. It's beginning to dawn on the people who this Jesus bloke is. It's beginning to dawn on them that, hey, this is the one that we've been waiting for. And then we're told in John chapter 6, verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force. But they weren't going to take him by force to crucify him. What were they taking him by force for? They were going to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. All right? They so much wanted this king. They so much wanted this Messiah king that they would come and take him by force. And so Jesus is saying, don't tell anybody just yet. Because Jesus didn't come to be the political king. The nation of Israel had every expectation that they're exactly what their Messiah was going to be. Their expectation was that their Messiah would lead them in a rebellion that would set them free from their Roman oppressors. Now for us, looking in hindsight, we sort of tend to um, physicalise all of this and go, yeah, that's, that's just, they're just looking for the physical side. No, no, no. They were actually looking for somebody that God was going to miraculously help them to beat a superpower, right? They were a small, subjugated nation. Rome was a superpower. This would be like Tonga saying, we're going to overcome the USA, This is the scale that we're talking about here. They believed this was going to be a supernatural event of God and that the Messiah was going to be the king that would lead them in to God's blessing and that they'd be physically set free. And this Jewish expectation is what lies behind Peter's rebuke of Jesus. Why did Peter rebuke Jesus? Because Jesus unraveled all of Peter's expectations of the Messiah. See, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. All right? Jesus, he didn't mix this up in riddles. He didn't try and hide it. He said all of this very plainly, that he would be rejected, that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would rise again. And this is not at all the expectation that they had for their Messiah. And Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. Brave man, Peter, isn't he? He took Jesus aside and rebuked him. No, Lord, don't go talking like that. But Jesus pulled rank on him. Jesus rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We humans, uh, we like to be on the winning side, don't we? And I can imagine, as I'm sure you can too, the joy uh, that Peter would have had when he first realised that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, and, and Peter had all of his expectations of the Messiah, the Christ, and what this meant. I mean, this would be like a woohoo moment. You know, like, we're going to be on the winning side. Here we are, like, we left everything to follow Jesus, and Jesus, he's going to be this mighty king. We're going to be right up there with him. This is fantastic. But then Jesus showed him what it was going to mean for Jesus to be the Messiah. And he showed him that the path to this amazing spiritual victory and this amazing eternal kingdom that God was going to bring into being was going to be a road paved with suffering and death. You see, man's way looks for immediate blessing in the here and the now. And it takes it by force if necessary. God's way is so very different. It was known from the prophet Daniel that, the coming, that coming with the judgment of God, the Son of Man was going to become the eternal king. And this kingdom itself was going to be eternal. But they didn't realise that, that the Son of Man was also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and that the Son of Man would win his eternal kingdom with his death. Man's way looks for immediate worldly blessings. Man's way looks for immediate recognition, immediate acceptance, immediate satisfaction, immediate affirmation, immediate vindication. Man's way focuses on this world. It focuses on the here and the now. It focuses on the physical. And it wants those sorts of blessings now. But the way of God is so different. When Peter tried to divert Jesus from the way of God, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. It's like you're saying, don't you dare stand in my way, mister. I'm going to do this God's way. I'm not going to do it man's way. Do you see what's happening here? Peter 
was projecting his aspirations onto Jesus. Peter was attempting to correct Jesus' teaching so that it would fit the popular agenda, so that it would fit Peter's own agenda, one that he was fully on board with. Now, I wonder if you've ever considered how tempting it is for us to project our aspirations onto Jesus and how we sometimes want to correct Jesus and we want to correct Jesus' teaching so that it suits our own prejudices or so that it suits our own agenda. So, for instance, those who are greedy like to twist the scriptures so that they'll teach them, hey, God wants you to be rich. Those who are racists like to twist the scriptures to try and justify their racism. Political activists of all different persuasions like to twist the teaching of Jesus to justify their particular political agenda. Of various special interest groups like to cherry pick a few verses here and a few verses there and then completely disregard whole sections of the scriptures to justify their own special interest agenda. Those who like to, to major on social justice often disregard Jesus' teaching on repentance of sin and the judgment of God and the need, our need for a saviour. While many evangelicals disregard Jesus' teaching on repentance and, and being transformed and, and disregard Jesus' teaching on caring for the widow and the fatherless and the hungry and the sick and the alien, the refugee. We need to be very careful that we don't become like Peter and we start projecting our aspirations onto Jesus and begin correcting Jesus' teaching to suit our own agenda. So, the Son of Man was going to suffer and die to bring his kingdom. And it's not far off until we come into the Easter season where we remember this. But the way of suffering isn't only limited to the master. It's also the way of the disciple. Already, we've been forced to consider the question, can I accept who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Christ, and can I accept what it means for Jesus to be the Christ? Can I accept that Jesus was rejected and that many will re continue to reject him today, that this is not the popular road. Can I accept that Jesus suffered greatly to pay the penalty of my sins? Can I accept that Jesus died and that he willingly gave his life as a ransom for many? And can I accept that Jesus rose again, that Jesus lives, and that as the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return again to judge the living and the dead and inaugurate his glorious new kingdom for all those who love him and who are eagerly waiting for him. Can, can, can we accept this? Do we accept this? I'd prefer to see some than, can we accept this? Yeah, yeah, we can. Good. Because that's what we're being asked when Jesus says, who do you say I am? 
Is that who you say Jesus is? Because that's who he is. Righto? Now, what about being a disciple of Jesus? Are you ready to accept what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Wow. The way of Jesus isn't some kind of namby-pamby option for those who are too weak to make it in the real world. This way is tough. It's the narrow road that Jesus talked about when he said there's a wide way that's easy and there's a narrow road that's really hard. This is the way of faith and commitment. And even though we ourselves are way too weak to be able to walk this road, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us strong. And in faith, we start out on this journey And in faith, we receive the strength from the Lord as we go so that we can live it. But you know where it begins? It begins when we disown ourselves. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, what does that mean to deny ourselves? So often... This gets watered down into something called asceticism. Sorry for the big word, but that's what it's called, asceticism. That's where you give up something um, to make yourself a bit better with God. So, for instance, has Lent started yet? Are we in the season of Lent for those who follow Lent? Yes, it is? Okay. In Lent, a lot of people will deny themselves something, right? So some people will say, I'm not going to eat red meat during Lent. Oh, I really feel like that piece of steak over there, but I'm not going to eat it. This is going to be something that I'm giving up for God. So I deny myself that piece of red meat um, for my own pleasure. That that would be my own pleasure. I'm denying that. It's something I'm giving up for God. But that's not what to deny ourselves means here. The Greek word which I probably shouldn't try and pronounce because it's a hard one, for me anyway it is, is apan isastho. It means, it's not, it doesn't mean to deny to, sorry, it isn't a denial to self, it's a denial of self, right? It is to disown myself. It is to renounce myself. I give up self to become a follower of Jesus. Yeah, some people 
will ask you, well, what do I have to give up to become a disciple of Jesus? Not much. Just yourself. Whoa. If anyone would come after Jesus, they have to disown themselves. They have to renounce themselves. They have to take up their own cross to follow Jesus. I'm becoming more and more convinced that the idolatry of our age and the idolatry of our culture, well, in our culture, it doesn't have much to do with the worship of sun and moon and stars. It doesn't have much to do with the worship of calves and bulls, although um, in our district, a bit of that happens. Um, we love our livestock. It's not so much about the worship of some little image that's been made and set upon the mantelpiece. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that the idolatry of this age, the idolatry of our culture, is the worship of the person who we see in the mirror. Not a worship of the, what they look like. I, I would certainly never worship that person. But it's a worship of self. Self-actualisation, self-rule, self-assurance, self-managed, self-administered, self-gratification, self-awareness, self-improvement, self-esteem. Celebrate yourself. Celebrate who you are. Celebrate everything about you. Value yourself more highly. This is the prevailing advice that the world gives. And let me tell you, it's the advice of a broken world. According to psychology today, narcissism is a serious social and psychological problem. Now, I reckon 10 years ago, I'd probably never heard of the word narcissism. I'm just a little country, country lad. And um, some of you say, hang on, you weren't a lad 10 years ago. Well, I felt like a lad. But... It's the word that we hear more and more and more. And if, when you know what it means, you see it appearing over and over again. It refers to an inflated view of the self, coupled with relative indifference to others. People who are high in this trait fail to help themselves unless there is immediate gain of recognition to themselves for doing so. Often they think they are above the law and therefore violate it, and they readily trample over others in their efforts to rise to the top, which is where they think they belong. And this article, it goes on to discuss the increase in narcissism in our world today. Uh, in a survey of university students, it tells us that approximately 70% of students today score higher on narcissism and lower on empathy than what the average student did 30 years ago. Narcissism is an ugly, ugly thing, and it's on the rise. It's becoming more and more the new normal. And why would we be surprised about this? When our culture is teaching us more and more, stand up for yourself, assert yourself, value who you are more highly. But you know what? The way of Jesus is the exact opposite of this. The way of Jesus goes against culture. 
He says, if you're going to come after me, you have to renounce self. Not for the sake of renouncing self, but for the sake of embracing someone who is far greater. Now, let's talk in religious terms. This is what we call being born again. We give up our old life. We renounce our old life. Not just what's happened to us and not just what we've done. We renounce who we are and who we have been. We give up our old self. We die. The old man is nailed to the cross. So I recognise that my old life is broken and pitiful. It's messed up, completely messed up, beyond my ability to be able to repair. And I'm born again into the Lord Jesus Christ. He raises me up new, a new person. And I no longer worship myself. For now I worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be born again. And so we take up our cross to follow him. Jesus never promised us a bed of roses. But he did promise us a, cro a cross of nails. You know, in our culture, we have trivialise this so much you know we might be getting a bit old and getting a few aches and pains and you know oh, it's just a cross I have to bear it's nothing of the sort you're getting old okay I'm talking to myself here I just said to my wife this morning oh, no, I might have to go and see the doctor about this shoulder it's just not it's getting worse and she says you realise you're just getting old said, yeah I know that I know that but to say this is a cross I have to bear, well, that, that trivialises the millions of Christians who at the threat of death have remained loyal to Jesus and have been beaten and imprisoned and beheaded rather than deny their Lord. That's what it means to take up our cross to follow Jesus. It means continuing to worship Jesus and continuing to be a witness for Jesus, even if it means that we'll be killed for doing so. That's what it means to take up our cross to follow Jesus. You might say to me, but Michael, isn't, isn't life sacred? Yeah, too right, it's sacred. Life is set apart for the Lord. When you're a disciple of Jesus, your life is sacred to the Lord. It's set apart for him. The amazing thing here is we gain life by giving it away. Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Let me be really clear here. Christianity is not some kind of suicide cult. In fact, disciples of Jesus value life very highly. 
That's why disciples of Jesus continue to be the ones who, who warn the world about the social evil of abortion. That's why most of the first hospitals that, that were ever established in this world were set up by Christians. It's why Christians oppose euthanasia. We value life very highly. And in our own community, where there's been a spate of recent suicides, I believe it's very important to affirm that the killing of oneself is a tragedy of the broken world in which we live. And the greatest tragedy is when those who have lost all hope for themselves and their life, without ever realising that in life, Jesus has something far greater for them. It's far greater than, than what they've experienced and it's far greater than the hopelessness that's driven them to the point that they're at. It is Jesus who is the one who says, are you burdened? Are you weary? Come to me. Come to me. Travel with me. Get in the yoke with me. Let me help you out here. Because with me, my burden is light. And if there's anyone who's listening to this today who is feeling so crushed and so broken that they don't want to go on anymore, I'm not going to trivialise it by saying those words that so many people do. Cheer up. I'm not going to say that. Because it doesn't work, does it? I'm going to be real with you. I want you to know, in life, there is new life for you in Jesus. The life that God has given you today is the life that God wants you to live. Oh, he wants to change it for you. I know this because he, he doesn't want any of us to stay the same. The Lord transforms our lives. He transforms us into something better, into the very image of Christ himself. And this happens in life. But the fact remains, our lives are the only things that we have to offer him. Not to end it, but to live our lives for him. You see, we don't find hope in ourselves. If you try and find hope in yourself, you're always going to come out disappointed. The hope comes when we give ourselves over to Jesus and begin to live for Jesus. We don't give up. We just start living for him instead of living for ourselves. We focus on him instead of focusing on self. We focus on the road and the path that he has for us instead of focusing on all of what seems to have been against us thus far. And as we live for Jesus, we follow him no matter what the cost. Every one of us, no matter how strong you feel or how weak you feel, every one of us have a choice to make. 
to either live for self or to live for Jesus. And to live for Jesus is the same thing as living for the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. Now, you've probably noticed by now that most of the time, the world doesn't care what you personally believe. What's the saying? Live and let live. Most of the time, the world doesn't care what you believe, personally. As long as you don't tell anybody about it. The persecution really starts coming only when you start preaching the good news of Jesus. And that doesn't mean you have to, to preach the good news of Jesus, doesn't mean you have to get up the front and do what I'm doing now. To preach the good news of Jesus is to simply share your faith with a friend, with a neighbour, to share with somebody the difference that Jesus has made in your life, to share with somebody the hope that you have and the journey that you're on with Jesus. Um, in, many, in many Muslim countries today, you can be a Christian just as long as you don't preach Christ to anybody else. In some places, of course, they, they cannot police what you personally believe, but they will certainly arrest you if you baptise someone in the name of Jesus. But even in our own country, if I tell someone that Jesus loves them, there's not many people who will react against that. Some will. Some will. Some people hate Jesus so much they don't even want to hear his name. But not many people will react to it. But if we tell them that, that we are all sinners and we need to repent of our wicked ways and turn to Jesus, that's when the persecution comes. For the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. Right? Some of us think we've nailed this, the first part, right? It's for the sake of Jesus. I love Jesus and yep, yep, yep. I'm willing to die for Jesus. For the sake of the gospel. No way, I'm not going to die for... I'll, I'll just be quiet. No, don't be quiet. This is for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. We take up our cross. You see, what we're talking about here all boils down to perspective. Have I got an eternal perspective? Or have I got a temporary carnal perspective? How we live our lives and the perspective that we have in life reveals what we really believe about Jesus. I think it was Henry Blackaby who said, what we do reveals what we truly believe. Our actions, what we do, are a matter of faith, what we believe. And the way of discipleship, well, it just doesn't make any sense unless we have this eternal perspective, unless we're living by faith. When we renounce our life, that's the turning point. A missionary once was asked, aren't you afraid of of dying for Jesus, to which she replied, no, I died 30 years ago when I gave my life to him. See, when we renounce our life, that's the turning point. It's a turning away from what is temporary and carnal to something which is eternal and spiritual.
Jesus said, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? I personally know people who started out following Jesus, but after a while the life that the world had to offer them was something that they yearned for more. I think of the young woman who so feared she'd be lonely, she began to date a non-Christian man. I think of a young man who was seduced by psychology and new age alternative lifestyle. I think of another young man who was attracted to other men. I can think of an old man who didn't want to be seen by the world as being judgmental. Now these are just a few examples of some people who I personally know and who started out believing in Jesus and following Jesus but there was something in the world that appealed to them more and each of these people they just started becoming more and more distant from Jesus as they embraced more and more what the world had to offer them until it'd be fair to say they weren't following Jesus anymore and for them it wasn't just a slip up that they later repented of we, we all sin we all get tempted we all fall and the important thing is when that happens is to repent of that sin and ask God for forgiveness and he forgives us and we, we're back on the road again following Jesus. But when it becomes a conscience and continuing embracing of what the world has to offer, it becomes a rejection of Jesus himself. Where's the point in this? If the world is offering me something that really appeals to me, where's the profit in it? Even if I gain the whole world, what can I give in return for my soul? Now, at this point, some of you might be thinking, oh, I don't sound like Jesus. Where's the grace? We haven't finished yet. Let's continue on with what Jesus has to say. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. The greatest pressure that Christians today encounter is to be conformed to the world. Now, I want you to be honest with me and honest with yourself. Ask yourself the question, am I ashamed of Jesus? Am I ashamed of Jesus' words? To be ashamed of Jesus and to be ashamed of his words is to conceal our allegiance to him. And it is to conceal our allegiance to his teaching. And to the extent that we go, well, my faith is a private thing. I keep it all to myself. We're concealing our allegiance to Jesus. 
We're concealing our allegiance to his teaching. We live in an adulterous and sinful generation. And some people be truly offended by that statement. What does it mean? Well, I believe it's both a metaphor and it's also quite literal. When Israel rejected God and turned to other gods, little g-gods, and idols, the prophets referred to this as adultery, all right? So God is pictured as the loving husband of Israel. Israel is pictured as the wife. But Israel rejected her husband and went to other gods and embraced other gods. And so Israel was told she was adulterous for turning to other gods. But with godlessness also very often comes literal adultery. And the culture that we live in is a godless, promiscuous and sinful culture. And the world hates anyone who would ever say anything like that. In fact, a message like this one today, there will be numerous people who will label it as hate speech. There'll be numerous people who would read these words of Jesus and say, that's hate speech. Because they feel that if I get called a sinner, then you must hate me. Not at all. If we don't love the people of this world, no matter how godless this world is, no matter how sinful this world is, if we don't truly love the people of this world, we're not the children of God. We're nothing like God. Not at all godly. Because God loves this world. For God so loved this world that he gave his only son. Preaching the gospel is not about hating it's about revealing the good news of Jesus and it's about saving. In many churches today, topics that offend get avoided. Why are they avoided? Because they like to be popular in the eyes of the world and they don't want to be condemned by the world and so they conceal Jesus' teaching and they conceal their allegiance to it. I've had ministers say, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that, but I'd never preach on it because I'll upset people in my congregation. Or I'll upset people, there might be somebody walk into church that day and I might upset them by teaching on that. I'd never do that. But Jesus says some really tough words here. And if I'm ashamed of him, and if I'm ashamed of his words, he'll be ashamed of me. And that'll be when it really matters. When Jesus re returns in all of his glory with his holy angels. And the image of Jesus coming as the Son of Man and with the glory of God the Father and the holy angels, there's no doubt this cannot be anything other than an image of the Day of Judgment. I don't want Jesus to be ashamed of me on that day. 
I don't want Jesus to be ashamed of any of us here on that day. I really need to finish. I told you it'd be long, hey? When I introduced today's message, I said, some will be greatly encouraged by these words and some will be repulsed by them. What causes such a massive disparity in response? Well, I reckon Jesus nailed it when he rebuked Peter. And Jesus said to Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If I'm someone who gets repulsed at these words of Jesus, it's evidence that my mind is not set on the things of God. I don't have a mind of faith. I don't have a mind set on eternity. I have a mind set on the things of man. A truly fulfilling life. It isn't achieved by self-fulfillment. You try and have self-fulfillment, ultimately you'll be disappointed. A truly fulfilling life comes when we set our minds on the things of God. And we live a life filled with the Spirit. It comes when we renounce ourselves and we follow Jesus. Nothing else in this whole wide world is as important as this. And there is no greater blessing. There is no greater blessing than to follow the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord, even under death. No greater blessing. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Lord, we want to thank you that Jesus is the Son of Man. We thank you that he's returning again. But we thank you so much that first of all he came as the suffering servant that on that day that we will be able that Jesus returns as the son of man we will be able to stand with him and that he won't be ashamed of us because he's called us as his disciples and we've followed the road that he set before us lord we want to thank you that by your holy spirit you give us strength to follow that path and Lord, we pray that day by day we would continue to renounce self and embrace Jesus and live for you and you alone. In Jesus' name. Amen.